July 1937, the world's most famous woman pilot disappears during her attempt to circumnavigate the globe. In 1988, the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery, a small nonprofit known by its acronym TIGER, began a science-based investigation of the Earhart disappearance. Decades of forensic research and a dozen South Pacific expeditions have now produced hard evidence from multiple disciplines to provide the long-sought answer to the riddle. In this series of conversations with Joan Sachs, Tiger Executive Director Rick Gillespie takes us step-by-step step through the adventures, the setbacks, and the discoveries that uncover the evidence that has solved aviation history's greatest mystery. Hi, I'm Joan Sachs. Like many of you, I've read newspaper and magazine articles and watched television documentaries about Tiger's adventures and discoveries. As a member of Tiger, I've participated in research and I know there's so much more to the story that's never been told. I've known Rick Gillespie and his wife, Tiger co-founder Pat Thrasher, for many years. And so when Rick asked me to help him bring the behind the scenes story of Tiger's Earhart expeditions to the public, I enthusiastically agreed. Over the years, there have been 12 Tiger expeditions to the South Pacific, and we've organized the podcast into 12 seasons. The episodes in season one tell the story of the first trip in 1989. Season two deals with the next expedition in 1991 and so on. To follow the progress of the investigation, you'll want to listen to the episodes and seasons in order. For newcomers, we make it easy to catch up with the story so far by publishing a compilation at the end of each season. Now let's get to the next episode. Rick, at the end of the last episode, you had just returned from that storm-tossed 1997 Niku-3 expedition with new information and big plans for another trip to Nikamororo. But you said something happened that changed your destination to a different island. What was that? Well, we immediately began planning the next trip to Nicomorale, Nicu 4, okay. We were wanted to do an intensive eyeball and metal detector search of the area along the beachfront where the woman in Funafuti had told us she'd seen airplane wreckage and right, we confirmed that. And then there was her father, Pulakai, who said that he had seen airplane wreckage on the lagoon shore we really were eager to get back and, and do all that. But later that month, that same month we got back, we got, got an email. The guy says, I have taken some pictures and airlifted an engine that appeared to be from a 1340 from the coral beach of Gardner Island. Now, what? The engines on Earhart's Electra were Pratt & Whitney R1340s. And this guy's saying he took pictures and airlifted an engine that appeared to be a 1340 from the Coral Beach at Gardner Island. So when was he there and why? Well, needless to say, that got my attention. Yeah. Yeah, seriously. Um, all right, here's the backstory on it. In 1970, the Space and Missile Systems Organization's space launch functions were reorganized with something called the Space and Missile Test Center, SAMTEC for short. Hmm. And that was established to oversee space launches from 
Vandenberg Air Force Base and Cape Canaveral. Now, what they were doing was ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles. Ah. And these had uh, multiple warheads on them. They were called MIRVs. The deal was that they would fire a missile from Vandenberg Air Force Base out over the Pacific, and they would target uh, areas within the Phoenix Islands, which were uninhabited, so there's nobody out there. And these are dummy warheads. There's, huh. there's no explosives there. They set up radar stations on three of the islands in the Phoenix group. Canton Island, which used to be a big military base uh, during World War II and was later a refueling stop for airliners, the big four-engine prop jobs. Uh, uh-huh. So there was some good infrastructure at at Canton. They also set up a, a radar on Enderbury Island, just a nothing little uninhabited spit of land. And Hull Island, another atoll in the Phoenix group. And again. For this project. For this project. Okay. Uninhabited. And the idea was that these radars would watch the ocean surface and they would see the splash. Oh. When the warheads, dummy warheads hit. And they could triangulate Yeah, they could adjust their aiming and so forth. To support this, they had um, helicopters. They had three big Sikorsky HH-3 helicopters, kind of like the Jolly Green Giants that everybody knows uh, from the Vietnam era. And this was going on from 1971 until 1976. And this guy, who emailed me, his name was Bruce. I'm not gonna go into his last name because that's not important. But Bruce was a crew chief on one of the Sikorskys. And his story was that on this particular day, they flew out to one of the outlying islands. They didn't usually go to the other islands that didn't have radars on them. There was no need to. But this particular day, for some reason, they went out to Gardner Island, of course, now Nicomororo. Uh, it was really quite a ways out for them to go. They happened to be there at low tide, and he looks down out the big open door on the side, and he sees an old radial round airplane engine on the reef flat. Just sitting there. Just sitting there. Huh. He says, wow, that's really interesting. Yes. And he talked the pilots into landing on the beach and then he dragged a cable out and hooked it onto this engine and they took off and they slung that engine under the helicopter. The whole way to Canton Island? All the way 200 miles back to Canton Island. And then he, (laughs) he put the thing on just an engine test stand outside the, his shop, his mechanic shop. And he'd poke around at it and try to figure out what it was and stuff. And he remembered very specifically, he says, you know, I know it was a single row, nine cylinder radial. I'm quite sure it was a 1340. And this sounds like he knew what he was talking about. Well, at the time he contacted us, he was 54 years old, married, two children. He had taught aviation maintenance at the same school for the past 24 years. Wow. He really knew his airplane engines. And he was now ahead of of his department. Hmm. 
he provided his information to us for free with no desire for publicity or payment. He became a Tiger member, joined Tiger, and uh, it was really active in helping us verify the various parts of his story because wow. we obviously I mean, wanted to check him out. And, really? Yeah, is he who he says he is? And you know, was he where he says he was? And so forth. What we were able to check was fairly limited, but what we could check did check out. We couldn't find any of the pilots he flew with, but we did find another guy who would work there for Samtech. And he said, Oh, yeah, I remember uh, Bruce had a, a old rusty engine on a stand outside a shop for a while. Well, the story was that he'd had it on that stand for a while, but then they had an IG, Inspector General, inspection come oh. And the commanding officer says, you got to get that place cleaned up. Get that thing out of here. <laughs> so he loaded it in the back of a pickup truck and took it out to the dump. Oh, it was geez. out beyond the runway. And he just put it in the dump. And he says, <laughs> it's still right there. And well, we're thinking, wait a minute. Is it possible that one of Earhart's engines is sitting there waiting for us to come get it? That's just at a crazy. dump on Canton Island. <laughs> we need to get to Canton <laughs> as soon as we can. Uh, how are we going to do that? We we got to figure out how we're going to do that. Yeah. So that kind of preempted plans for another trip to Nicomarara. Really? I mean, if we can get an engine right there in Canton, that's... and can you still fly in there? And land? Well, Canton has had and has a good runway, but um, we needed to find out what the conditions of the runway oh, sure. were, and, and you know, so. So but, is yeah, it? We were thinking, yeah, the military still have any presence there, or the it, U.S.? No, no. Okay, the, so. When the Air Force left there in '76, turns out they just picked up and left, oh, and darn. the place is. A mess. Mm. Uh, there are a few Gilbertese families, Caribous people, mm -hmm. there to occupy the place. Uh. And they get resupplied every once in a while. And we started working on that. How, how are we going to put this, this yeah, together? Yeah, you have to do that. So we're, we're working along on that, researching that. And, and then in June of 97, I get another email. One of the things I really like about my job is you never know what's going to show up in your email. <laughs> really? You know, it just... Well, this email was from Peter Macquarie, who was a Tiger member living in New Zealand. Ah. His membership was up for renewal, and we hadn't received his membership, and I emailed him and got no reply, and jeez, I wonder what happened to Peter. And then on June 27th, 97, I get this email. Dear Rick, just to let you know that I am back on email again after a lot of traveling, including Rabi Island, Kiribati, and Tuvalu. Oh. And I'll now be at the University of Can Canterbury in Christchurch, New Zealand, until the end of the year while I finish my book on Kiribati in World War II. He's a, a writer, Hi. and he was doing research for the books he writes. Uh -huh. so he writes about World War II in the Pacific Islands. Most of July I will, however, not be here as I'm going on a trip to the Tuckalaw Islands. Okay. In Kiribati, 
I had a good look at the government archives and found the file on the remains found at Nicomororo by Gallagher. It turned out they were the remains of a Polynesian man more than 60 years old when he died, and the remains had been exposed to the atmosphere for at least 20 years. Wow. The sole of the shoe was a woman's, all right. Stay in touch. Regards, Peter McHugh. Wow. I read that as a holy moly. <laughs> He's dismissing it. He says the file says the, they were the bones of a 60-year-old Polynesian man. He'd been around 20. The fact is, there's paper on this. Yeah. This has been nothing but rumor since the beginning of this project, that bones were found on the island. Yes. And everybody said it was nonsense. Wow. And the story we knew had a lot of things in it that weren't true, but we suspected there was some truth Kept in it. Coming up, yep. But suddenly, yeah, it really did happen. We need to see whatever is in that file as soon as possible. Well, Peter's back in New Zealand. Uh and getting in touch with the archives in Tarawa in 1997 was not easy. I mean, it very difficult to make a phone call, get somebody that spoke English. Mm. I, need a, I need this stuff faxed to me. We, we did find a guy, an Australian expat living in Tarawa, and he agreed to help us with this. So he'd go down to the archive and he faxed us copies of the telegrams in this file that okay. Peter had seen. It, it took us probably a few weeks to, to get that all sorted out. What these telegrams seem to be are Gallagher, the, 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 the British colonial officer who was the resident officer on Nicomororo for a, a time. Right. And these were telegrams that were his copies that were in his file. So I, when he'd send a telegram to somebody, he'd keep a copy of his right. file. And then when a, a telegram would come in, he would put that in the file. So there's back and forth here. Hmm. A skull was found by a work party before he got to Nicomororo. This was April of 1940. The work party finds a skull. Now, oh. they were on the other end of the island, down at the southeast end from where the village and the government headquarters were. They were probably cutting wood for the construction of furniture that Gallagher had ordered built from native lumber on the island uh. for his new headquarters. They find this human skull hmm. and they bury it because if you're Gilbertese and you find a skull, that's what you do. Otherwise, you're going to have ghost trouble. <laughs> so they bury the skull. And the island magistrate, native magistrate, uh, Kawata, Buwaki Kawata, found what turned out to be a Benedictine bottle, liqueur bottle, that wow. reportedly had fresh water in it for, for drinking. He took that as a souvenir. Now this is back in April, Gallagher's not there yet. Gallagher arrives in early September and the same ship that brings him takes Kawada away to go for medical treatment in Tarawa. Ah. So they have very little time together. But Kawada takes the bottle with him and Gallagher only hears about the bottle after Kawada's gone. Mm. So Gallagher sends a telegram and it's in this file to 
the acting administrative officer of Tarawa, David Wernham, he says, hey, uh, Kawada is on his way to Tarawa for medical treatment at the general hospital. Get from him a certain bottle <laughs> that was found with bones on Gardner Island that just might be the bones of Amelia Earhart. Now, this is a telegram dated September 23rd, 1940. Wow, that and says, actually yeah, said that. Yeah, we've got this in front of us now. Okay, yeah, bones thought to possibly be Earhart's were found by Gallagher on Nicomororo in September of 1940. That friggin' happened. He also went on to explain in, in these other telegrams. You see, he, he reported this to the resident commissioner for the Gilbert and Ellis colony. That was on Ocean Island, a few thousand miles away. You know, <laughs> that he had found a partial skeleton. He, he, he went to where they said this skull was found and buried. There he looked around and he found a partial skeleton and he found parts of a woman's stout walking shoe or sandal, he said, but it was part of the soul of a woman's stout walking shoe or sandal, but he's quite sure it was a woman's. Hmm. And he found a sextant box. Oh, a, really? A box that had once contained a navigational instrument, a, a sextant. Right, right. Which he thought was probably a, a nautical sextant huh. for, for a Did ship. It markings on it? And... Well, and oh, he's, it. Yes, it had numbers on it. Oh. It had two numbers, neither one of which made any sense to him. Ah. Uh, so, to you? The, to me, not at that time. Oh, huh. Not at that time. There was remains of a campfire, and there were dead birds, a dead turtle, and he said, "Yeah, obviously this was a castaway who had tried to survive and had died." Huh. The island's only been settled. You know, our people only got here at the beginning of 1939, so we haven't been here long. Right. This isn't this isn't anybody from our group. This is somebody that died here before we, we got here. Obviously a castaway and a woman's shoe and a navigational instrument. Now Gallagher had come out to the Pacific as a cadet officer right about the time Earhart disappeared in 37. And it was all in the, all the papers. Oh, so so he, was, he was aware hmm. of that. And everybody in the colonial service was aware that Earhart's husband, George Putnam, had put up a $2,000 reward for evidence leading to her, the discovery of her fate. Oh. $2,000 was more than a British Colonial Service cadet officer <laughs> was going to make it. God knows, you know, it was a lot of money. He, this really got his attention, but he was also careful. He said, and it just quite possibly might be Amelia Earhart. He sends this message off to the resident commissioner who looks at it and says, I've got to pass this on up the chain. Hmm. So he passes the information up to the high commissioner of the Western Pacific High Commission down in Suva, Fiji, the boss of the whole shebang. Ah. That's Sir Harry Luke. And they are all officers of the British. Yes, they're all British colonial officers. They're not military. They're ah. colonial ah, service. Right. Well, Sir Harry says, you tell this guy to make a thorough search of that area and send everything he finds here to Fiji. 
and keep his mouth shut. This is going to be strictly secret. We're not going to tell anybody about this until we know more about what's going on. Uh-huh. You say, well, why would he do that? I mean, if they thought it's Amelia Earhart, why not let the Americans know that, hey, maybe we found Amelia Earhart. Maybe they have information. That, oh, sure. Well, think about it for a second. It's September 1940. What else is going on in September 1940? Like the Battle of Britain? Yeah. Like, like Britain stands alone against the Third Reich. Mm. Churchill desperately wants the Americans to do more. Mm-hmm. Uh, Roosevelt is trying to do more, but he's got a re-election coming up in just a few months. In right. November, this is September, November there's going to be an election and it's touch and go. And a lot of the public is very isolationist. And yeah. Wendell Wilkie is doing well in the polls. And so Roosevelt's got to be careful. And Churchill has got to be careful how he pushes him. Well, Sir Harry knows all this. He says, you think I'm going to put myself in the middle of that? No, 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 no. Let's keep this right here in Fiji until we know mm. what's going on. So this all ha- this is all happening in September, October, that there's this the exchange going back and forth between headquarters in Fiji and Gallagher on Nicomaroro. But it's January of 41 before this stuff can actually get shipped uh. because the, the shipping is, is rare and, and they had some serious weather trouble in late 1940. So it was January of 41 before the bones and all the stuff are, are headed for Fiji. And uh, they're aboard the royal colony ship Nimanoa, which stops at Tarawa on the way to Fiji. Well, there's a guy in Tarawa who is the senior medical officer. His name is Lindsay Isaac. Nimanoa gets into Tarawa on February 6th. Dr. Isaac finds out that there are bones aboard Nimanoa, but he doesn't have any of the paperwork that goes with them because oh, this is strictly secret. Right. But he gets told, yeah, we have a consignment of bones here. He says, well, I assume that they were sent to me to be evaluated because I'm the senior medical officer. And he grabs the bones and he does his own analysis of them. And he says, oh, okay. These are ancient. I mean, they're more than 20 years old, and, it, and it's an elderly Polynesian, probably 60 years old. And uh, these things, they might be dangerous. I'm going to quarantine the harbor. What? Nimanoa's not going anywhere. And I've got these bullets. And he, he lets the resident commissioner know what he's done. Oh, my God. And the resident commissioner says, oh, my God. And he reads Isaac the Riot Act and says, you let those bones go. Let Nimanoa proceed back to Fiji now. (laughs) And so Isaac kind of says, oh, all right, all right. And I still don't understand why wretched relics could be interesting. So the bones arrive in Fiji in April. And people in Fiji look at them and say, wait a minute. I thought there was supposed to be a sextant here. And they correspond with Gallagher and say, hey, we got the box, we got the bones and the other stuff, but isn't there supposed to be a sextant? And Gallagher says, no, I didn't find a sextant. I just found the box, that's all. Mm-hmm. And that's where the file ends. 
Really? That's it? Because that's, that's all Gallagher had. Uh. Whatever else happened, happened in Fiji. We looked at that and we said, wait a minute, there's, what happened? Who did, did somebody else look at these bones? Did anybody evaluate? What did they do? We've got to find the records. They've got to be somewhere. But where? Where are they going to be? Well, we, we started that search. Meanwhile, <clears throat> by September of 97, this is all going on in the summer of 97. Okay. By September of 97, we had a plan for getting to Canton Island. We're going to fly there. They've got a 6,234 paved runway. Oh. It's still in decent shape. We were able to confirm that. Good. Because the U.S. Coast Guard occasionally flew into Canton for emergency medical evacuations or... Um, Sure, the people. The or if, if, if somebody really needed transportation to Hawaii, some of the kids, the Gilbertese kids that lived on Canton, went to school in Hawaii. Makes sense. So yeah. The Coast Guard would occasionally fly a C-130 down from uh, from uh, Hawaii. So it could handle that. Oh yeah, yeah. All right, we'll need a, an aircraft capable of making that 2,000 mile flight from Hawaii to Canton. Hmm. It should be a turbine aircraft because there's only Jet A available ah. on the island. There's, there's no avgas there, it's, it's only jet fuel. Hmm. The aircraft will have to be able to carry a scientific team of at least six people, and it's gonna have to have a door, door large enough to accommodate the dimensions oh, right. of an R1340 radial engine, which by the way is 51.6 inches by 41 point. Oh, one inches, okay, in case you, you were that. interested. <laughs> and it would have to be able to handle the engine's 865 pound weight. Okay. And, you know, while we're in the neighborhood, we want to overfly Nicomararo and get the aerial photography we've always wanted. Because oh, the only cool. aerial photography we have of Nicomararo at that time is this old, old U.S. government stuff from right. wartime and, and earlier. This is before satellite photos. Yeah. Right. Now, good God, I mean, we've got all the credit. But back then, it was a big deal. We, we got to have some aerial photography of this island. Well, we found a Gulfstream 1 twin turboprop oh. that was for charter in Hawaii. The airplane had a 2,000 mile range, what we needed. But it turned out that the Jet A on Canton was old and not reliable, unsafe. Yeah, can't do that. We needed to find somewhere to refuel on the way so we can go into Canton with enough fuel to return to the refueling point. Well, there's not a lot of places between <laughs> Hawaii and Canton, but there was a World War II airstrip on Palmyra Atoll, which was almost exactly halfway. And still... A thousand miles from Hawaii, a thousand miles from... Still active? Did they have fuel? No. Oh. They did not have fuel. But they had a good runway. Well, they had a runway, <laughs> put it that way. Palmyra was owned by the U.S. government, but it was uninhabited except for a small crew to manage the Nature Conservancy Climate Adaptation and Resilience Laboratory there, oh. some scientists. Hmm. So we needed to get permission to use the airstrip. There was no fuel, so we'd have to pre-position fuel and hand pump from 55-gallon drums to refuel the Gulf Stream. <laughs> We've just 
erased about 60 years. We're, really? do, we're doing it exactly like Amelia Earhart had to do. <laughs> and the other concern was we'd be overgross going out of Palmyra. And that airstrip was 5,000 feet long, but it was crushed coral. Oh. And it would be marginal. Okay, so it's going to be hairy. But an engine from Earhart's Electra might be waiting for us at the dump on Canton. Right. That's so very we're going to do whatever it takes to get there. <laughs> While we worked along on finding sponsorship and selecting a team and tackling the complicated logistics of getting to Canton, right. we were also chasing these bones, ah. which were no longer rumor. They were documented fact now. Hmm. Now, what, what I had visited Eric Bevington, the guy who had been right. on the island with Harry Maud in 1937. And, yeah. um, and we had visited him in England in 92, as I recall. I told him this story about bones being found on the island that were thought to be from Earhart. It's this, the Floyd Kilts, uh, retired Coast Guard veteran story that was crazy. Uh -huh. But we saw these elements of truth in it. But Eric thought... That was ridiculous. He said, if something like that had really happened, I would know about it. All of us in the Colonial Service would know about it. It, it just could, could never have happened. But now we had proof, and I, I had stayed in touch with Eric. Um, and we're, we're buddies by now. We correspond back and forth. I sent him the proof. I said, these are Gallagher's telegrams. I mean... Wow. And he was just astonished. He says, I don't understand how something like that could have been kept that secret. I, I knew Gallagher. I, I knew the people at the West Pacific High Commission. We talked after I was retired. We used to get together over drinks and we'd always tell straight. Nobody ever said this. They did that good a job keeping a secret? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that that's kind of strange. Yeah. That they worked that hard at keeping the secret. Eric did have some rather pointed things to say about Lindsay Isaac. Oh, so he knew him. The doctor in Tarawa who had intercepted the bones uh, and pronounced them to be the remains of an elderly Polynesian. <laughs> I will just leave it that Eric didn't think much of Lindsay Isaac. <laughs> he was scathing. In his... Oh, my. The files on what happened after the bones got to Fiji should be in the records of the Western Pacific High Commission. Yeah, but think. the WPHC had shut down in 1976 after all the colonies and territories under its jurisdiction had become independent. Our primary researcher that was working on tracking these records tracked them to an obscure archive located, <laughs> they were co-located with highly classified MI6 operations like the British CIA yeah, operations. Why? at Her Majesty's Communications Center in Hanslop Park, a little town 60 miles north of London. Did you go there? Well, at first, did he, we, did he go there? Our, our first reaction when we found out where the archives were yeah, like and found out what the communications center was like, said there's like, no way they're gonna, there's no way they're gonna let Americans in there. Oh. Not because of the WPHC archives, but because this is where MI6 evaluates photographs of terrorists and they're not going to let us in there. But we might be able to get them to work with us via fax, just right. talking to the archivist. Yeah. And so we asked, well, 
a researcher asked, do you have a file on Amelia Earhart? Well, let me check. Yes, as a matter of fact, we do have a file. Um, what's in the file? And they faxed us the contents of the file, which was very small. And it turns out that this is a, a file that dates from 1937, when George Putnam asked the British to investigate an island that he had heard about from a, from a psychic. Oh. It's an island that <laughs> doesn't exist. I see. But he was all over him about, you've got to get somebody to go to this location because there's an island there that a psychic says, that's where oh. my wife and her navigator are trying to survive. So there was that so back and it. forth. That's what their file on Amelia Earhart said. Something was wrong. Yeah, really. Something was wrong, and we didn't know what. Anyway, we had more success putting together the expedition to Canton Island. Ah. By early 1998, we had found the sponsorship. Good. It's a wealthy individual who wanted to come along. Yeah. He's an airplane guy. Yeah, cool. Cool. You know, yeah. He wouldn't defend it. It was about $50,000. You know, okay. Yeah. We had selected a 13-person team, and we had worked on all these logistical arrangements about pre-positioning the 55-gallon drums and so forth. So at dawn, on February 14th, 1998, we boarded Gulfstream November 196 Papa Alpha at Honolulu International, and we took off for Canton Island via Palmyra Atoll. Cool. So how did it go? We'll talk about that next time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we will look forward to hearing. Thank you, Rick. Thank you. Thanks for listening. The Earhart Expeditions is a serial history of Tiger's 12 expeditions to the South Pacific. We release a new episode each Tuesday. You can receive special bonus episodes and get access to Tiger's extensive video library by becoming a premium subscriber. Just go to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and search on Tiger, T-I-G-H-A-R. You can also be a part of the adventure and participate in research. Go to tiger.org and click on Join Tiger. See you next Tuesday.